Okay, good morning, everybody. Today's letters of tradition, we are traveling from Babylonia, where we met the great and holy... What did we meet? Anyone remember? Okay, next week we're doing it again. We were talking about Haigon, and we traveled now to Germany. The Jews have migrated from Yerushalayim, from Israel. They've gone from Israel to Babylonia, and now we're in Germany. Now, the thing is, Jews have been in Germany before before the Rabbanim got to Germany, as always, like in most countries, rabbis don't usually go first. They usually are, are, are a response to people traveling there, either because they had escaped persecution, or in Germany it seems like, although Jews got there during the Roman age, they went there for, tra- for uh, commerce and trade. That was where the center of those things were, and Jews traveled. And eventually, people tra- enough people traveled there that there were rabbis who traveled there, and Along comes in the year 960, the great Rabbeinu Gershom Ma'or Hagola. Rabbeinu Gershom Ma'or Hagola, Ma'or Hagola means Ma'or Hagola, the light of the exile. So he was obviously the, the undisputed leader. He shows up in Germany, or, and uh, he, become, he opens the yeshiva, and he becomes, again, the Ma'or Hagola. The, the go to the end all. The rush has a lush in somewhere. The rush writes somewhere. The Rabbeinu Asher, who we'll see in future weeks, says, Anything Rabbeinu Gershom says, it's as if it came down from Harsina. And we're talking about, you know, this is the great, the, the, the great, great, great work. Um, he's the Rebbe of Rabbi Yaakov ben Yakar, who's the Rebbe of Rashi. And if Rashi, for those who, Rashi stands for, you know, Yitzhak, but also Rebbe Shal Yisrael. So the Rebbe of Klal Yisrael is also going to be the great Rebbe. So that's Rabbeinu Gershom. He wrote, he wrote a couple chuvas. He also, his yeshiva, not himself, Put together a gloss on this tie of the Gemara and many of his efforts. You open up here's Baal Basra. So, all right, the text of the Gemara is over here. I got a really big one so everyone back there can see it, and I can give myself some sort of tennis elbow picking it up. Um, the Gemara, there's Rashi. Rashi's a running commentary, right? Basically, Shakalatire, line by line, he tries to explain it. Where did he get the style from? It wasn't, Rashi did not originate it. This was the style known in his days. So, his Rebbe, Rabbeinu Gershom, in that school of thought, already does it on the side. So Rashi, Rabbeinu Gershom, he's incredibly helpful. Obviously, he's, not, he's no Rashi, but that's not an insult. You know, everyone wants the Talmud to be better than them. Um, so that's Rabbeinu Gershom. He wrote Chuvas, he wrote Piyutim, he was a Python, especially during all the persecution that took place in his days. What's he most famous for? You can only have one wife. So Rabbeinu Gershom, allegedly, which we'll discuss, Allegedly as well, Rabbeinu Gershom put together a takana, put together an enactment. He had to convene some sort of bezdin with how many people it's unclear. And out of that bezdin, whether it emerged from Rabbeinu Gershom himself or from his yeshiva, a bunch of haramim. Haram is an uh, excommunication, uh, some sort of almost klala, curse, against certain practices. Um, certain practices. One was, if you look in source number, oh, we'll see three of them in source number one. Again, none of them are actually labeled. Oh, they are labeled. I lied. Source number one is, this is, comes from the Encyclopedia Talmudit. Encyclopedia Talmudit, if you look at that yellow volume up there, it's a, um, it's a volume of um, uh, encyclopedia put out, started by Rav Zevin in the 1950s. It's going to be 2,500 entries when it's completed. The man, Rav Zevin, thought of all 2,500 entries without a computer in 1950. They're still working on it until today. A couple years ago, some big donor gave money and said, basically, hurry up the project and get it done within 10 years. 
So when they were putting out like one volume every couple of years, now at the end, they're in like, I think Mem Zion was published last week, so that's 47. Now they're putting about three or four a year, and hopefully in about you know, six, seven years, they'll be completed with 70,000 plus volumes. It's a wonderful work. So in the Encyclopedia Talmudin, under the entry of Reina Gershom, he says as follows. A person cannot marry more than one wife. A man cannot divorce his wife unwillingly. A man cannot divorce his wife unwillingly. This is uh, this is not his. This is not his. This is just the Encyclopedia Talmudin. This was written a couple years ago. And and the other famous one, which we alluded to on Friday night this past week, for those who were there, one cannot read someone else's mail. And these may all be connected, and we'll get to that in a second. So again, you can't marry more than a wife, you cannot divorce your wife without unwilling according to Torah law, and man can walk up to his wife, hand her again, and say goodbye. Rabbi Gershom, stop that. And lastly, and lastly, you cannot read someone else's mail. There were other tekanas as well, in terms of re-accepting people who are apostatized, um, which, by the way, Rabbi Gershom's son actually apostatized. He became a Christian, and Rabbi Gershom it says, he, says he sat Shiva for his son. And that's the source that some have for seeing Shiva when, some, when, a, when a, a child marries out. But that was Rabbi Gershom. His life was not necessarily the easiest life. He had a lot of tsaras. So what I want to focus on today is this concept of one should not marry more than one wife. And I said we are going to conclude once allowed to in order to just make a you know Chesed a distinct place. No, I'm joking, we're not going to conclude that. But we're going to I want to focus on that and show you how A, why it developed, how it developed, is this true, this is an expiration date, and also how that may tie into his other taqanas as well. Okay, ready? <laughs> Let us begin. The Rambam says as follows: No si Adam Kama Noshim. A person can marry many women, and his wife cannot say no. But who, very important caveat, he has to be able to provide for her. A husband has three primary obligations to his wife, and if he cannot provide, then he cannot marry another woman. Okay, fine. So he says as follows. A woman, a rabbi says a woman can marry more than one woman as long as he can provide for them. That is the rabbi, that's clear that that seems to be the normative halacha prior to Rabbi Gershom. Long comes Rabbi Gershom, and again, interestingly, we don't actually have a record of this, of this cheirim. We have in various early, early sources, people quoting it and mentioning it. And obviously, whenever you have someone mentioning something, there's going to be differences. And some of those differences are actually significant. But the rush quotes it as follows. Look in uh, source, this is source number three. I'm sorry, I forgot to, I forgot to put a number. There's a great wise person in our land. His name is Rabbeinu Gershom. He created many great uh, enactments. The Indian Gershom, when it comes to divorce... So first of all, he says he's lived in the days of the Gaonim. So he's, he's, he's actually throwing them back a little bit to the days of the Gaonim and not the Rishonim. Yes? Any question? No, it just seems like it's a matter of money. What is? <laughs> How many women do you have? Yeah, for sure. For sure. We don't have money, not just money. It kind of puts the woman in the... You know, it's, it's not a very uh, lofty position. 
So, uh, two points. One is we don't have it anymore, but more importantly, right. it's share to Oh no, it's, it's providing for its clothes, it's it's food, it's also spending time with her. So it's, but yeah, but maybe that's we'll, we'll get there. We're gonna get we're gonna un unpack that. So he says. So the, the Rosh says he lived in time of the Gaonim. Right? We, we discussed there was a, a divide between the Rishonim and the, and the Gaonim. The Gaonim were looked at to be um, what they said tended to have more weight. And we explained why a couple weeks ago. So he says he's one of the Gaonim. And what Rabbeinu Gershom says, and we actually just quoted a minute ago, it's as if they came from Har Sinai, i.e., like, we don't, if someone says, this is Halach Lamosh Sinai, we just say yes, accept it. So he's, he's saying, whatever Rabbeinu Gershom said, this is going to be accepted. And why is it as if it came from Har Sinai? So this is a very interesting concept. This is found in the Rambam as well. Some things we have in life, we know Moshe Rabbeinu came down and said, the Torah says, Priyat Sadar, you should get yourself a beautiful tree, a beautiful uh, a fruit. What's that fruit? So, Halach Lamosh Misinai, or Lamosh Kabbalah Misinai, it's a it's an esro. It's filling our black and boxes. How do we know that? Halach Lamosh Misinai. The Rambam seems to be of the opinion, and the Rush seems to somewhat endorse that. That if there is something that all of Klal Yisrael accepted, if there's communal acceptance from Klal Yisrael, that takes on the same dinim as things that Moshe told us that he got from Hashem and Harsinai. Things that Klal Yisrael accepted. There's a certain idea of acceptance of Klal Yisrael. One of them may be, by the way, the authority of the Gemara, the authority of the Talmud. Why do we go with the Babli? Well, Klal Yisrael accepted it. And that there's, there's something about the way Klal Yisrael lives their life and how they accept things. You know, it's kind of what we discussed with the Minhag. A couple weeks ago, that once there's a minnow that takes on that all of Klal Yisrael accepts, that that becomes Torah. Minnow Yisrael Torah. So the the Rush already says whatever Rabbeinu Gershom says, it has authority. The question then becomes, why did Rabbeinu Gershom enact this essentially and forbid people from marrying more than one wife? And what was the reason for that? Why why would he do such a thing? So Abraham Grossman, who's one of the great scholars of the Rishonim of Rashi in that era, so he points out a couple of very interesting things. One is he says is that if you look at the records of the, of the Crusades and the chronicles of the persecution, and you read the kinos of that age, no one ever mentions, when they mention families that were slaughtered, a husband with more than one wife. Which I think was fascinating. It's a very compelling idea that perhaps Rabbeinu Gerashim was not saying, oh, people are living this way, we got to stop it, but rather he was enacting a decree on what already was the practice of the people in his age. And I think there's a very interesting idea. And it, it's also compelling saying, look, look at the historical records. You know, this family was slaughtered, this family, no mention of women. And, I, and Rav Schechter is very fond of saying, why would in general we make a khir? Is it that Chazal were like, oh, we got to stop something? Or perhaps... There are certain things that we know are, are wrong. And we can't always pin down exactly what's wrong about it. And again, it's a little harder to say it with marrying more than one wife. We say that Yaakov married more than one wife, etc. And therefore, along comes the cherub and says, it's wrong, or maybe it hasn't played out the way it should play out, as we'll see in a minute. And therefore, a cherub comes along. And I'll give you an example. What did you speak about this past week, Friday night, for those who were there? Surveillance. Surveillance, eavesdropping. One of the cheirs of Beno Gershom is you can't read someone else's mail. Well, I ask you, 
Why do we need a chayrim for that? That should surely that should be usher. We mentioned many reasons. You know, there's Gnevis Das, perhaps Lashon Hara. We said maybe the Bahaftlerecha Kamocha. You don't want. We wouldn't want someone else reading your mail, so why are you reading their mail? Why then would? Why then would we need a Reino Gerishim to come along and say, oh, also a chayrim? So it could be one of two things. Either it could be, he's like, okay, in Achanami, we all know people, the Torah says many things people shouldn't do, people still do it. So you want to strengthen it by saying, yeah, if you do it, now you're in Cherim, now you have a certain curse on you. Or perhaps, Rav Shecht is fond of saying this, perhaps, when you have someone reading someone's mail, what is the issue? Maybe it's this, maybe it's that, maybe it's Vahav Telerecha Kamocha. You know, you go to someone who's all into reading someone else's mail and say, Vahav Telerecha Kamocha, they're going to be like, ah, that's cute. This is explicitly, thou should not read someone's mail. You tell me a lot of it's, it's like almost, it's a little ambiguous. It's amorphous a little bit. So Rabbeinu Gershon came along and said, we all know certain things are awesome. And now, because you're, it's, we can't find a clear source, but you're quoting me, I'm going to make sure you know it's us or make a chayrim. So perhaps one can make a similar argument here. It wasn't done. It just wasn't done. In Christian society, it wasn't done. So Rabbeinu Gershon kind of came along and was like, no one's doing it. It's not playing out well, and we'll see why in a minute. And therefore, I'm making a chayr up to ready to say, this is not being done, it's, not, it's never worked out well, and therefore, we're done with it. We're done with it. It's like an analogy today for the world, that you know, the elections were stolen and so on. No, no reasonable person agrees to that, but we're going to make laws prevent the election from being stolen. And that becomes a sham for you know, bad behavior. And most reasonable people think that. So you could argue the same thing. It's not being done. So there's no problem. Why make a law for them? But no, it's the main. We want to make sure. We want to make sure it's not done at this point. There's always outliers. There's always outliers. But you say, then they're still going to do it, but you make a law for them. No, the chirim is essentially saying, in the Middle Ages, it wasn't our show. In Antiochus, like every show in America is opt-in. You can come, you can leave. And you live perfectly, perfectly normal life. I mean, you're missing a great aspect in your life, but you're in the Middle Ages. If you did not have a part, of, if you were not part of the Kahilo, you essentially were all, you know, you were you were in trouble. You had to be part of the Kahilo, and otherwise, you lost all support system. Or in some places, you had to then either become a Christian because the government would not accept you. So a chayim is much weightier. If you say you're excommunicated, you can't be part of the community where you, you can't get food, you can't get, you know, you can't do anything really. You're kind of stuck, and you may even have to join Christian society. So it, it is binding. It's a real punishment, especially when Besdin isn't exactly punishing people the way they used to. Okay, so the question is why make this takana? Why, why we make it? Can anyone want to suggest reasons for why we shouldn't marry more than one wife? Besides that it wasn't really done? Charles? As I said to Dana before, you're in trouble here. If you're like, yeah, you should, you're in trouble with your wife. And if you say, nah, one's enough, you're still in trouble. I think it's to protect men. Protect men. <laughs> one mother-in-law. That is probably the real reason, but no one wanted to say it. Mormons still permit that? We are not Mormon. No, no. I, 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 last I checked. It's not, a, yeah, it's not like it's totally gone from the world because in, 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 uh, in Iraq, Iran, the Persian Jews were still having more So than we're going life. to get there in a minute. Okay. Because remember, we know, where did Rabbeinu Gershom live? Had two wives. Where did Rabbeinu Gershom live? He lived in Germany. He was yeah, Ashkenaz. No, no, I, I understand what you're saying, but, and it's, but, but once he got to Israel, though, Okay, but that's, that could be, you know, Rabbi Gershom lived in Ashkenaz, he lived in Germany, and just because he said so in Germany, he wasn't necessarily accepted by all Jews. In fact, are those who want to argue, 
a French rabbi would never accept what Rabbi Gershon said. Like, who are you? They said Rabbi Gershon would never enact like for French rabbis because he knew it wasn't his jurisdiction and the French rabbis would never accept it. So, it could be he enacted something and over time it developed and it got more accepted and widespread as we see even in Israel. This would include, quote-unquote, non-Jewish wives? You can't marry a non-Jewish wife. That's... Well, she could be considered what? A non-Jewish woman marries is not a wife. So then it wouldn't... So mm-hmm. you could have a non-Jewish wife, so to speak. No, you can't, because that's another issue in the Torah. <laughs> that's another issue in the Torah. Okay. Source number... So, so, okay, if you look to the why, why would he institute this? So there are a couple of reasons brought down. First one is... I say to God, Elab of Nei, Pritzit. Pritzus, licentiousness. You can hear that. Not, you're not exactly going down the right path right there. Number two, the Lavush writes, and this is interesting. Um, I thought I had one more on here. Did I, did I leave it out? Oh, the next page, another page. And, or elsewhere he says, Mishum Katata. You're going to cause a lot of argue. Oh, that's right there. Look at the Lavush. <laughs> This is source number two under the Y. They say even in the places where the Rabbi Gershon did not have jurisdiction, you still should not marry more than one woman. Why? You should, you should um, minimize machlokas. You're open machlokas between your jealousy, etc. Um, between a man and his wife and his mother-in-law. And says the bush. In most places, people do keep the tikkuna. Even though the tikkuna expired, which is what Elliot mentioned, the minhag remains. Source number three. Also, I stole from the encyclopedia. Not more women. You can't afford to. You can't afford to. Uh, you, know, you can't afford to feed them all. We'll get there, we'll get there, we'll get there. Because it's because people live very difficult lives and they can't necessarily afford to have more than one wife. You know, it's expensive to buy a lot of uh, jewelry. Okay. That was that one. Next one, I, and this is the next interesting, this reason, and, and, and Professor Grossman suggests this, and I think this is actually very compelling. And he says as follows. In the time of Rabbeinu Gershon, people started traveling all over to do business. People would literally travel all over to do business and they were leaving for sometimes years at a time. And what started to happen was when someone went elsewhere, they'd say, oh, you know what, I'm, I'm living somewhere for five years, I'm gonna get married and raise a family here as well. You know, I'm lonely, whatever it may be. And because of that, there was a concern that families don't know the other family exists. You can have potential issues if, the, if their kids meet each other. And he brings very interesting reasons, you know, proofs for this. He points out that if you look in, uh, look, just skip down to the English there, does anyone want to read it? Or I can read it. See, this is the um, Jewish woman in Europe in the Middle Ages. However, in my opinion, the main motivation for the edicts was connected with the economic activity of German Jewry during the period. Many were engaged in international trade and stayed for lengthy periods of t- time in remote lands, including Muslim countries. More extensive documentation for this phenomenon exists today than in the past, thanks to the correct identification of numerous anonymous sources in response to literature written by the German sages during the same period. These sources provide a comprehensive picture of merchants who traveled, often to distant places and were absent from their homes. This is especially true of the response of the Gershon of the disciple Judah Cohen, who were active in mines during the first half of the, le- of the 11th century. The merchants stayed in different countries, including Provence, Spain, North Africa, and other Muslim countries. At times, their stays in these remote places 
continued for several years as indicated by the sponsored literature. This also explains the strange phenomenon of the penetration of technical commercial jargon used in the Muslim countries that originated and originating in the Arabic language into the language of the German sages during that period. So he says, you see clearly people are traveling around, people are traveling from, people are traveling from all over the world, or all over the world, and you can see clearly, he points out that mines are the center of trade, we said we find in mines, which is in Germany, spices and, coin, and coins from the Arab countries. So clearly people are traveling all over the places. At this point, Venice and most of Italy has been eclipsed in terms of a center of trade, Germany's that center, people are traveling, what happens, you travel from place to place for years at a time, so people end up raising a family elsewhere and then you have potential issues, yeah? I think a more practical issue is how do you keep more than one wife, you know, happy? How, how do you not show favoritism? So that, that, that's also, that's, that's raised affection, as well. And your purchases, jewelry, whatever you're doing, so that, that's, kind of a, that's kind of what the little bush is saying. That's what the little bush is essentially saying. You have more than one wife, you're going to end up having katata, umachlokas, which is arguments and fights. And as Elliot pointed out, probably more the mother-in-laws. But um, yeah. And the kids as well. And the kids as well, yes. Achas the hated wife. You had to with the so more. Yeah. You're going to have problems where families don't know each other and want to see that's exactly what this is point is. His point is, and this actually comes, the Gemara Vama says as follows, Yes, y'all can't Amr of Elias look on top of the page. It's on page. It's on top of my page. Yeah, I'm going to start with three. A person should not marry a woman in America and go to Brazil. Because we have exactly Elias' concern, you have two families, they don't know each other, they meet each other, and it's brother and sister not knowing their brother and sister. So that's, that's, that's a concern, and, and Professor Gross wants to argue that based off a lot of compelling evidence, in fact, the Rambam also, there's the Ingeras in the Rambam, a letter from the Rambam, where the Rambam says a person cannot marry, if someone comes here, no one's allowed to marry a foreigner in Egypt unless we know they are divorced. The, and he, said, he says, again, so it just seems this is what was happening. This is prevalent. It's, you know, we, we, we take for granted that if, even when we have to go on business trips, we literally get on a plane and we can be back in a couple hours, a couple days. Back then, you, you can go away for years at a time. You go away for years at a time, so you, can, you end up, you know, maybe you want to raise a family elsewhere, and you can end with this problem. Therefore, Rabbeinu Gershom realized this. And Rabbeinu Gershom realized or that this can lead to major issues, so he made the takana that you have to, you cannot marry more than one wife. In a couple hours, you can create problems, too. What do you say? In a couple hours, you can also create problems. This is true as well, but that, that's, yeah. Okay, fine. Again, we also find that with Rabbeinu Gershom as well. Uh, sorry, with Rabbeinu Tom as well. Lastly, so that was, first we, we asked we asked as follows. We, we started off, we said, what was the cherem? We said the cherem was uh, uh, three different things. Well, it's four or five different things, the three main things. You can't, marry, you can't marry more than one wife. You can't divorce your wife without her will. Without her will. You can't read someone else's mail. I want to point out, why do you think it's so crucial you can't read someone else's mail? Think in terms of economic activity. Imagine I am traveling from Germany to the Far East. And Daniel's like, oh, can you bring this letter to my business partner? Because now we have business partners throughout the world somewhere in the Far East. And I read it and I find out, oh, there's a great sale or something, wherever it may be, I can go and steal Daniel's deal. So the fact that you could, one can make the argument, I don't know how compelling, but I think it's pretty compelling, that if they, it's all on the same idea. If people are traveling and doing business, when you start reading someone else's mail, you can es essentially undermine their business, and that's why that was also so important. We mentioned that if you look through the, the records of the Middle Ages, 
Jews were not marrying more than one wife already, and I said perhaps that can come down to the idea that Rav Shechter likes to say that sometimes a cherim is less about making something usher, more about saying we know this is usher already, like reading someone else's mail. It's very hard to pinpoint what exactly is the isser of reading someone's mail. Is it again, don't do something to someone else that you don't want done to yourself. Is it Geneva's Das, which we talked about on Friday night? Maybe. Is the idea of, of, Hezek, of Hezek Shmia, that's why it came up there. So, so therefore they make a acherim in order to strengthen what we know is already usser, so the person can't say to you, oh, point out to me the verse of the Torah. I can't point it to you, but no, you're going to be in a But these are all the Rabbanas, right? These, well, well, reading someone else's mail. No, they, no let's say there's one more. Yes, these would all be a minhag, although that's the question, which we discussed also a couple weeks ago. Sometimes an a minhag becomes accepted by everyone, it takes down a din of Torah. Hassan Sofer pointed that out. No, that's a din nether. Okay, then we said, why would he institute this? So we gave a couple reasons. We said the Dark Emotion said because of preachers, licentiousness. The Lavush says because it's going to create machlokas, which Charles is a big fan of. Not machlokas, but preventing machlokas. We saw the Encyclopedia Tabudit said maybe you can't afford to feed them, no, uh, to, to take care of them. And lastly, Professor Grossman points out very compellingly, based on the Gemara and Yivamos, that you can end up with people all over the place. The last thing I want to discuss is, is there an expiration date? Everyone's heard this. There's an expiration date. The Cheyarim does not exist anymore. Even though Lavush pointed out it doesn't exist anymore, but now it's a minog, which is kind of a funny idea. They say, oh yeah, you have... 200 years, it's over, but 200 years later, oh, we all accepted the race, now it goes on forevermore. Kind of, you're in a funny place. So is there an expiration date? Is there an expiration date? Where does this come from? So the source of this is a tshuva from the Ma'arik. Quoted in the Beis Yosef, look at uh, Beis Yosef, the Ma'arik says as follows. Well, it's actually a Rashba, excuse me. Cost of Rashba, but tshuva. Um, so first he points out First, he points out that it wasn't accepted everywhere. He says, Even in Provence, which is very close to, to, to Germany and France, they didn't accept this. We find elsewhere, people are very chashiv and wonderful people were marrying more than one wife. People were not concerned about this cheirim. Because of Hamarik, he only made this takana which is roughly around 1239. So not very long. This is the source for it. Comes along the Pisgah Tshuva. So the Pisgah Tshuva is Avram Tzvi Hirsch Eisenstadt. It's a wonderful, wonderful work. He essentially, he goes to Shulchan Aruch, he didn't make it through all Shulchan Aruch, which is such a shame for those who learned Shulchan Aruch. We, we, we miss him when it comes to like Arachayim. But in Yaradeya, in Choshen Mishpat, he collects all the tshuvas, from all the Oshal's tshuvas on that sugya, and he'll put it down there, and sometimes he'll slip in his own ideas. He has a second, a second page called the Nachlas Tzvi, where he really goes um, in detail. It's a really wonderful, idea, a wonderful, wonderful parish in Bamba Shulchan Aruch. So he explains what's going on. He says, if you look at the tshuvas, Mishka's Yaakov, this is your test down there. The Nero Lo Lossi's Tom, the Shmuzu, after Hogazer's become in the Fellas, Olam, Ad, Shiama, based on God of the Hoffmo, Min, Kedua. Why would Rabbeinu Gershom put an expiration date on what seems to be a very good idea? Right? We went through so many ideas why Rabbeinu Gershom's like, we got to make the Takana, so why would he make an expiration date? Right? If it's really good, keep it going forever. And he says as follows Although we know, 
when Chazal make a takana, it's a takana from now and forevermore. He says, the Ramban points out the Torah that Bezdin is Edo Yachal Lechade Shum Dover Begzera Kim Lasa Siyag Latora. Rakzos Yeshul Bezdin Rishus Lasarach Shal Lefi Inin Hadar. So the Ramban has a very interesting idea, which we're not going to get into because it's an entire shirin of in and of itself. The Bezdin themselves, Chazal, are limited by what they're allowed to make Gezeras to. Because we have a concept called Baltosif. Right? You can't add on to the Torah. That does not just apply to us, which the, the Rashba, for instance, thinks. The Rashba is like, yeah, Baltosif means I can't get up one day and say, for now I want to put five boxes in my tefillah. Or for now on, we have a new Takana that people are not allowed to do X, Y, or Z. The Ramban does not think so. The Ramban thinks even Bezdin, even Chazal themselves, are limited by what they're allowed to enact. And anything they do enact, there has to be a, a good enough reason or some sort of smach, some sort of place in the Torah where they can say, oh, we see from here, one should do this. And I'll give you an example. Purim. How were Chazal allowed to come along and institute Purim, a new holiday, Baal the Torah tells us, Shalosh Rogalim, three times a year, and suddenly, oh, Purim, a new holiday. Lame Megillah. Essentially, how can they do that? So the Ramban says, ah, oh, they can't. However, the Gemara in Megillah and Daf Yadal, it says, if we said hollow when we were freed from Mitzrayim, which was only slavery to our freedom, we should say hollow if we are saved physically. If we were going to get killed, now we are saved. So if this is a Kavachomer, if this is what the Gemara says, if we say hollow from slavery to freedom, certainly from death to life, it must be a Torah principle that one should be saying halal, and therefore Chazal came wrong and instituted Purim. Which tells you a little bit about the, what we're doing when we read Megillah. It's not just reading the story, but it might be a, a din and halal. Again, look at the Gemara there. So the Ramban thinks that even Chazal themselves are limited somewhat by how they can make takanos, and therefore Rabbeinu Gershom can't just come along and say, oh, nuke takano, can't marry someone else's wife. Because if he did that, that's Baltosa. What he could do is call a hara shah. Temporarily, one should not marry Someone else's wife. That's not, that's not a bit about Tosif. He's not saying from now on forevermore. He's saying for the next 100, 150 years or so. So that's what the, why the Pisli, Pisli Chuba thinks allegedly there's an expiration date. Then the other Rishonim point out, okay, what happens in the year, in, in the year, Sofa Elephant Hamishi, the end of this day, the rest of the Rabbi got like, you know what, let's continue this. And they continued it. So either Minna continued it or there actually was a Gzeir to continue it. However, the um, the Pesach is not a big fan of this idea, and he says he says as follows: Ach be'emes lab diver ekolhi ve'enu muskim klav v'kar omdu alzek ketas gedol b'tshuva beis yosef. He says this is not true. We don't find anywhere this idea that Chazal limited uh, that Rabbeinu Gershom, excuse me, limited the takana. The kam gedolim shrei b'tchilas elav hashishi k'maharan v'amordechai v'rami rutenberg v'ravio. So these are the gedolim of our past, who lived after the alleged expiration of the of the takana. This is Rabbi Nissim, the Mordechai, Ron Rutenberg, Rav Yoh, People we're going to see in future weeks. They all talk about the cherem, and not one of them mentions, "Oh, it's expired." Not one, which tells you already. If the greatest rabbanim get up to speak and they leave out a crucial detail, it's probably not true. And again, why might this have developed? As we pointed out, we don't have an actual text of the original Takana. 
We only have Shmuas. We only have people who said, I, I mean, when I say people, we have great Rishonim. Murad Moedberg has his recording of it. The Rush has his recording of it. He has his recording of it. So again, when, it, when things are handed out like that, maybe it's, that's slipped in there. Because if you look in the actual tshuva that the marik, of marik, the source of this is the Rashba, the Beisiyosi quoting marik. If you look there, if you yourself low brayerle it's not even clear in there. We're all basing this off of Beisiyosi quoting marik because if you look at the actual marik, it doesn't seem like he necessarily says that. Maybe the Beisiyosi had a had a had a gear some mistake of some sort. The gam biyamshul shlomu yivamas. As a boundary to protect some sort of Isser in the Torah, which makes a lot of sense, by the way. What Isser in the Torah are you, are you preventing? I don't think you can make it just to prevent Machlokas. As much as we want to avoid Machlokas, that's not, I don't think we're going to call that a Siyog. The only one it really could be is to prevent what you pointed out and what Professor Grossman pointed out. People marrying their siblings, essentially. Because there are many reasons. Therefore, this gezerah is like every other gezerah, and whether you're living in the year 1500, 1600, or 2021, it has the same grasp, the same hold, and one is not allowed to violate it. One is not allowed to violate it at all. And therefore, and if you look when we pass in the Ramah, he says, Lo He first quotes an opinion that there was only until the end of the Elif Hamishi, the Ain Nohagin came. And that's not the way we paskin. So the Ramah Paskins, for us Ashkenazim. This Takana, as the Rush said, almost like came from Harsinai. You one is not allowed to violate. It did not expire. It's not like our milk, which goes bad every three days, unless we leave the fridge unplugged, and then it doesn't go bad. It becomes butter. Um, this gazera is around. It's not how you make butter. I know, Daniel. I've made butter. This gazera is still around, and it seems that even in the Sephardic lands, it has now become the accepted minog, and one can probably make a very compelling reason that barring very few places, even Svardin can no longer marry more than one wife. For that matter, no one thinks a husband can divorce their wife, Balkarov. I don't think the Svardin passed in that way. You can correct me if I'm wrong. And certainly you cannot read someone else's mail, but that might be other issues beyond Sheher Ben Gershom. And that concludes our start of Ben Gershom, Mar Hagola, the great, the great sage who became eventually Rashi's Rebbe and really set the precedent for, Ashken, for Ashkenaz, which is the way we pass in Lamaisa nowadays. Go ahead. Go ahead.